Thank you. Um, so you know, you know, you know that CLC is a gracious place to work at when you can make such a mess. And then they're like, hey, let's promote this guy, <laughs> right? Uh, honestly, it is so cool to see kind of how God um, has kind of moved in my life. I remember very vividly being a teenager right in these pews, um, just kind of being poured into by loving adults like you guys. Um, and invested in. And uh, I remember in these pews, it's where God kind of came alive to me. Uh, and I felt my first kind of sense of call to, um, to work at a church and build his kingdom with students. And so to kind of be here on the stage in this kind of new capacity is really, really wonderful and just uh, totally a testament to what God is doing. So I'm so grateful. And you guys have been really kind to me too. Uh, I try and push the envelope a lot, bring confetti into the sanctuary and all that stuff. And um, so far things are going okay. I have not been kicked out out yet, so, but I'll keep trying. Um, but uh, for my first kind of uh, order is, is, uh, um, is in this new role uh, today is to give us one more reason why we should stop attending church. Sounds really fun, right? We're in this series called Rest in Peace Church. It's all about identifying really good reasons to just stop attending church, right? And the heart behind this series is that God has called us to way more than just attending church, right? God's called us to way more than just showing up here on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night, right? God is inviting us to participate in this otherworldly, this joy-filled, mission-driven thing called the kingdom of heaven. And he invites us to participate in that right now and to usher in heaven, right? And so anything less than that, anything that kind of sabotages this big picture that God's inviting us into, anything that deters us from that, we should crucify and put to death. We should not be a part of that, right? We should abandon it wholeheartedly in exchange for what God actually wants for us. Do we want that church? Anyone want that, right? And so today we're going to be talking about uh, that. What we want to do is identify a good reason to stop attending church. And instead, what does it look like to become a cross-shaped community? A community so enamored by Jesus and transformed by that. CLC, are we interested in that? I like talking with you guys, so you know I'll I'll do that a lot. Are we interested in that? There we go, okay. And so today we're in Revelation, which is kind of a scary book for some of us because it's so mysterious and confusing, right? It's like trying to read the menu at Starbucks. There's so many details. You don't know what's going on. Um, Revelation comes from the Greek word, just for some background, apocalypsis, which just literally means the unveiling or to reveal. The whole point of this book is to reveal what it is that Jesus is doing now and forevermore. And he's inviting us, this book is intended to invite us to participate. Don't be bystanders. Lean in to what God is doing, right? And so we've been working through these seven letters in the church. And John is writing this book on behalf of Jesus, right? John is writing this book for two reasons. One, he's trying to uh, encourage a church that is being persecuted, a church that is being trialed and is, is experiencing tribulation. He's trying to encourage them to hang in there, hang in there, lean in, don't throw in the towel, don't give up, right? That's the first thing. The second thing is he's trying to challenge these churches. A lot of them are being influenced by the culture around them. They're compromising doctrine and things that should be centered to the faith. They are welcoming in practices in the church that are just so not of God. And they break down our relationships and all these things. And so he's trying to encourage them. But at the same time, he's trying to challenge them, to call them out of complacency. 
And so today we're in the fifth letter to the church in Sardis. And if I could, I always try and do this, I try and distill everything. If I could summarize this whole thing in, in one statement or invitation, I'd just give you that detail in the front end. If I could summarize what this letter is trying to get at, it's this, that our love for comfort will kill the church. Our love for comfort will kill the church. And so we should kill our love for comfort before our love for comfort kills us. We should lean into the uncomfortable. And I want, to say, I want us to say that together. Everybody say lean into the uncomfortable, right? Lean into the uncomfortable. Does that make you just a little uncomfortable saying that? <laughs> lean into the uncomfortable. If John and Jesus are writing anything or are inviting us into anything today, it's to, hey, church, lean into the uncomfortable because that might be where we encounter God. So may CLC close its doors before we ever get so preoccupied with being comfortable that we forfeit participating in the kingdom of heaven. May I lose my job here before that were to happen. That's the backdrop. Really exciting stuff, right? That's the backdrop that we're leaning into today. That's what um, John has for us in this, in this passage. And so before I jump in, I'm, I'm going to pray for us real quick. So Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for your scripture. We just pray um, that you would challenge us to be uncomfortable with the acknowledgement that it is in those moments that we encounter you in new ways. And so God, may your word challenge us. May we be a little uncomfortable for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. We pray this in your name. And everyone said, amen, amen. amen. All right, so we're in Revelation chapter three, verse one, and this is what it says. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, these are the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And he says, I know your works. You have a name of being alive, but you are dead. Now, I don't know about you, but um, I have this app. I get an email every day when mail comes in my mailbox. And so I can see what I'm getting before like, I actually get it. And I get so excited when I see a piece of mail that's handwritten on the front, right? I love seeing the handwritten stuff, like the, the handwritten return address, the handwritten address, right? They could have misspelled my name, but the fact that they hand wrote it cancels it out, right? It is a handwritten. And actually, uh, the studies show... Now, when you get a handwritten message, it actually releases dopamine, the feel-good chemical in your brain, right? And so here they are getting a letter from John, the words of Jesus, right? And we see this symbolism, the, the, seven, uh, the seven spirits of God and the seven stars all representing that God is close, right? God is in their midst. God knows what they're going through, right? So they get this letter. It's handwritten. It looks so great. But the first line would have killed like any dopamine-releasing chemicals that we might experience because what are they saying in this first line it says I know your works you have the name of being alive everybody thinks you're doing the greatest thing you have the name of being alive but you are dead <laughs> talk about uncomfortable right I mean imagine imagine if you love this church like, CLC's doing so many great things, man. The events that they do, they're celebrating so many seniors. The services are great. The, the pastor's dad jokes land and change my life, right? Uh, their events are so God-driven. Their worship is transformative, right? I mean, just imagine you think that about our church, and then you get a letter from God that says, hey, everyone thinks you're alive, but you're dead. But you're dead, right? 
That would be pretty overwhelming to hear. Remember, John's trying to encourage them, and he's trying to challenge them. And here Jesus is making a gut-wrenching, dopamine-locking diagnosis, right? You are dead. Cut the flowers. Prepare the grave marker. Here lies the church of Sardis, right? And so we might be asking, you know, upon what information does Jesus make that diagnosis? Because that's a pretty strong claim. I've been to the church in Sardis, and they look like the real deal. Upon what is Jesus making that huge claim? And we see it in the passage. It says, I know your works. And I wish John would, like, spill the tea here, right? Like, he just gives no detail. Like, what are the works? Is it stuff that they are doing or stuff that they are leaving undone? What are the works of Sardis? And I think it's not in there very intentionally. But we see here, Jesus says, you are dead, and I know that because of your works. And we might be tempted to think, we always have to watch ourselves, we might be tempted to think, does that mean I have to work for my salvation? Does that mean I have to earn God's love? I just got to work hard enough, and then God will see all the work I've done, and God will then love me? Is that what it's mean? No, it's not actually getting to that at all. And I'd like us to think about it this way. Um, Every time you go to the doctor, right, you walk in, they take your height, And you step on the scale and you don't look at the number because you don't want to change your diet, right? (laughs) And then they take you even further into the room. And what do they take? Your vitals, right? And so what they do is they, they take your oxygen level to ensure that your lungs are giving your blood oxygen. They check your heart rate to make sure your heart is functioning properly. They check your breathing to make sure that there's nothing going on in there, right? They check your vitals. And this is what's important. They check the vitals to get a picture of the health of the body. The vital signs don't give you life. They simply reveal the life that is already in you. The vital signs don't give you life. They simply reveal the life that is in you. And in the same way, the works, how we live our lives, how we love our neighbors, how we love our enemies are the vital signs of the life transplant that Jesus has given us. Right? It is a tool to almost evaluate that we have experienced this life transplant that God has given us. Therefore, my vitals are the markers that reveal God's work in my life. Our work, our conduct, the way that we love God and our neighbor, the way we care for the poor, are our vital signs of salvation, not the source of it. They simply reflect our inner condition. And if our vital signs aren't looking good, then we would ask the question whether or not we've experienced this life transplant, this transformation that God has invited us into of experiencing the transformative power of what Jesus did on the cross, right? And so if, it's, if, if, it's, if the vital signs aren't looking good, it's probably not God's fault. But I would question, have I really experienced this life transplant that God has invited me to? Have I experienced it for myself? The diagnosis is that Sardis is dead. They have all these things that they're doing. They look great. And oftentimes when scholars look at this, they say, Sardis has probably grown lazy. They're apathetic, lethargic. They were comfortable. And such symptoms have killed them. What might the vitals of CLC be? What might the vitals of CLC be? We never want to ignore our vitals. And I would even ask the question, what might your vitals be? What might my vitals be? If we're being honest, right? And so we're reminded that Jesus is gracious because he's writing this letter to Sardis. He could have kept this on the DL, right? He maybe didn't need to tell them, but 
God's so gracious. He's giving them a letter to let them know what their vitals is are and what is going on. And so um, we're reminded, what again is the big picture in Revelations is God is making all things new. God is bringing heaven to earth. And here, even in this letter, even to this dead church, he's giving them an invitation to still participate in that. And so Revelation verse 2 reads, Wake up. We just sang that song, right? Wake up and strengthen what remains and is on the point of death. For I've not found your works perfect in the sight of my God. You ever see those, um, those hospital shows? Me and my wife had a real long kick with uh, one of them. We just watched them all the time, right? Those hospital shows and someone's in the hospital room. There's so many of them. And, um, and there's that, that uh, monitor. We have a picture of it. This monitor that kind of tracks their life, right? And usually the main character is like about to die, right? And the monitor just kind of flat lines, right? But then what happens? Almost in every show, it's so predictable. You see that one little spike in the heart monitor, right? One little spike to indicate that there is still some life there. And so usually they scramble in that moment to revive or bring back this person, right? And so we find that this is the case for Sardis, right? Jesus says they're dead, but then in this moment we see that there's actually a spike on the monitor. That there's actually some life still there. And he invites them to do two things to revive this life, to bring it back in the church in Sardis. And these are the two things that he says. Wake up. And strengthen what remains. Wake up. When do we usually sleep? It's usually when we're comfortable, right? I mean, nowadays as a dad, I can sleep at any point in time. But uh, usually when we sleep, we sleep when we are comfortable, right? We often sleep or we grow lazy or we let our guard down when things are going great. When things are smooth and things are comfortable. And Sardis, of all places, had many reasons to feel comfortable. They had many reasons to relax, let their guard down, be a bit apathetic and kind of careless, right? One of them being is they had so much money. This town, this church, they were loaded. In fact, if you Google it, where was the first coin minted? It was in Lydia, of which Sardis is the capital. And so they had money. They were comfortable, right? Some of us, we get distracted by that. Uh, I know we need money, but right, this idea that this is my key to comfort. And they had buckets of money, so they were comfortable. That's the first reason. And the second being is this. They were very well protected. The location of Sardis, and we have a picture of it. Originally, Sardis was built on that cliff. And eventually, as they kept growing, they then ventured down to the valley. But originally, Sardis was on top of this cliff, of which three sides had flat bedrock that went vertically, that no one could attack, right? They were safe and secure. So all they had to do is get watchmen to watch the fourth side that was more of a hill and an incline, right? All they had to do was watch that fourth side. But aside from that, they were living it up. And even when they're watching that fourth side, you can see your opponent army from miles away. And so no one would want to overthrow Sardis or attack them. And so they had two reasons that they were comfortable and sleepy is that they had a ton of money and they had security. And don't we all vie for that? We go to great lengths to try and get that, don't we? Don't we? And so they had those two things. And so these things and more gave them a great sense of comfort. And they might have been going through the motions of Christianity. And just sleeping on God, right? Just totally ignoring what God was calling them to. This is why I think um, 
This is why I think Jesus would make a terrible presidential candidate, <laughs> but a great doctor. Because what do presidential candidates do? Usually when they're campaigning, they give you a bunch of promises of how they're going to make your life easier. How they're going to make your life simple, right? And Jesus would be a terrible presidential candidate. I'm sure if he were running for president, none of us would want to vote for him. Because what would he say? He's like, hey, if I were president, I would make you carry your cross. <laughs> I just saying about that a moment ago. I would make you carry your cross. I would invite you to love your enemies. I would challenge you to give up a lot of stuff for the benefit of your neighbor. I would invite you to do all these things. So he'd be a terrible presidential candidate because he'd make us uncomfortable. I don't want to be uncomfortable. But Jesus would call us into that. But he would make a great doctor, right? Doctors, when they have to do a diagnosis or give you a treatment, they're not like, ah, you know, we're not going to do this because it's just not going to feel very pleasant. So, like, you're good to go, right? <laughs> they don't do that, but what do they, what do, they do? They, what do they say? They say, this is going to be uncomfortable. And then they administer the treatment because the cost of not doing the treatment is greater than the cost of the discomfort of the treatment, right? So Jesus would make a terrible presidential candidate, but he would make a great physician, because we're invited into the uncomfortable. And so, again, our love for comfort will kill the church. May we kill our love for comfort before it kills us. Let's say it again. Let's lean into the uncomfortable, right? I'm going to have y'all say it a lot. I really want to feel y'all sweat when we say that. <laughs> this would be a good reason to leave the CLC if this was a place that sacrificed our following Jesus for comfort. And I hope that we can all be taking good measurements of vital signs and how we're doing in that area and how maybe we can participate in what God's doing to help us grow. And this is why John is writing this letter. This is why John is delivering this uncomfortable news because he's trying to invite the church in Sardis and every church to wake up, snap out of it, be watchful. Your church is dying. Your church is dead. Your vital signs are not great. You've fallen asleep. Wake up and strengthen what little remains. And it says, your works have not been found perfect. Perfect isn't the best translation. If you look in the Greek, it actually means complete. Your works are just incomplete, right? You say, we say that we are participating in this otherworldly kingdom. Yeah, we're sleeping. What's going on? So your works are not perfect. They are incomplete is what the scripture is saying. They've traded short-term They've traded long-term vitality in life for short-term comfort, right? It's a huge problem. And so he says, wake up. How do we wake up? He actually, uh, do, we, do we work harder? Do we tithe more? Do we go to more events? Do we kind of fill up our schedule and then get stressed out? Like, what do we do? What does it look like then to wake up? And God's so gracious. In the, in the text, he actually gives us great clarity in that in verse 3. Let's look. It says this. Remember then what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. So I'm a bit saddened this week, if I'm being honest. Um, I remember when I went to college, I took this kind of intro class, and I stumbled upon this author that the way he distilled um, faith in the gospel animated my faith in new ways. I was able to understand 
what God was doing and what God was inviting me into because of the work of this author. And his name is Tim Keller. Uh, Tim passed away two days ago um, after a battle with cancer, but his work still kind of reverberates in the church and his work still resonates deeply with me. And so um, what we see what we see Tim do, he distills the gospel in such a beautiful way, and I want to share that with us this morning. He distills and summarizes the gospel as this. He says, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Talk about uncomfortable. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. And what's the instruction here of the church? It's to wake up, and how do we do that? We, we receive and hear. That's the first steps that we do. And so we have to remember what it is that we've received and what we've heard, which would have been this good news, right? The foundation upon which the church is built is this good news that Jesus is making all things new again, and he invites us to be a part of it, right? And so we have to remember what we've received and heard, that we are more messed up. You guys are messed up. I'm messed up. Like, we are way more messed up than we could ever understand. Yet at the same time, we are way more loved and cherished than we could ever dare hope. What good news, right? Is that good news? That's good news, right? And so what we're invited to do is not work harder, not pick ourselves up by the bootstraps, but it's first, hey, remember what you've received and heard. Then it's on the basis of remembering that we do the second thing. It's then and only then can we do the second thing. Out of this great, this joy, this news, that should be what animates us to obey and repent. That good news is the catalyst that provokes us to joyfully and organically and willingly obey and repent. And Tim Keller continues, he describes the process like this. He says, Religious, religion says, I obey, therefore I am accepted. Christianity says, I am accepted, therefore I obey. He continues that when you look at what Jesus did for you, then by the power of the Holy Spirit, you'll change. There's no way around it. When you understand what Christ has done for you in your life, there's no way around it. You will change, right? So the solution to waking up is not to try harder, not to guilt ourselves into doing more, but it's to remember what we've received and heard. And by doing so, it'll capture us. And invite us to obey and repent. Seriously, are, are, we, are we captured by what God is doing? Does the good news capture us anymore? Or maybe like when you fly, you kind of ignore the instructions for safety because you've just flown so many times. You've been to church so many times. Are we still captured by this good news that there's great impact on our today and our tomorrow. Are we captured by that? Are we captured so much that we're driven to repentance and obedience? And as a way to go about our vitals, um, Tim Keller, actually, there's a video that I wanted to share. He, he asks these questions. He says, these, this is a good way to check our vitals in this area of whether or not we are captured by the gospel. And he has these questions that he often uh, went to to evaluate our vitals on this topic. And he calls this that these are questions designed to wake up sleepy Christians. Let's check this out. 
Let me give you what I would call my modernized American version of the kinds of questions I would ask people if I was trying to get them to really think about whether or not they know Christ, whether they're, uh, these are questions designed to wake up sleepy Christians and to convert nominal Christians. So here's a couple of questions. How real has God been this week to your heart? There's a question to ask somebody in pastoral work or in a small group. How clear and vivid is your assurance and certainty of God's forgiveness and fatherly love? To what degree is that real to you right now? Are you having any particular seasons of sweet delight in God? Do you really sense his presence in your life? Do you really sense him uh, giving you his love? Here's another question. Have you been finding scripture to be alive and active? The scripture, instead of just being a book, does it feel like it's coming at you and searching you and, and, and really, really alive and active and coming after you? Are you finding certain biblical promises extremely precious and encouraging? Which ones? Are you finding God's challenging you or calling you to something through the word? In what ways? Okay, here's the third question. Are you finding, are you finding God's grace more glorious and moving now than you have in the past? Are you conscious of a growing sense of the evil of your heart and in response a growing dependence on and grasp of the preciousness of the mercy of God? You see, put together, that is a growing understanding of grace. I want to repeat those last two questions because I think they're really helpful. Um, are you conscious of the growing sense of evil in your heart? And in response, a growing dependence on and a grasp of the preciousness of the mercy of God. When we grow in those things in increasing measure, we find ourselves being so enamored by the goodness of God. That look how broken and messed up I am, yet look how loved I am. It doesn't make any sense, right? And we, we find that we are enamored so much so that it compels us to obey and repent. And I want to unpack, obey and repent. I see obey as we're just participating in the recreation of ourselves in the world. We are um, being called out of self-sabotage when we obey. Don't we all want that? Who wants to participate in self-sabotage? No one. Obedience is our participating in the recreation of all things, including us. And repenting is just simply our orienting ourselves toward it, towards the work of God, turning away from the things that lead to death and turning towards something that leads to life. Don't we all want that, right? Don't we want to participate in that? And we do those things even in the midst, this is, this is the kicker, even in the midst of great discomfort. We're willing to lean in even in the face of great opposition. I recall our students a few months ago, I didn't tell you I was going to tell this story. Hey. Um, I recall a few months ago they were carrying around this plastic baby. <laughs> You know, for like health class or something, you have to keep this, this plastic baby alive, right? And so we were at an event, and they walked in with this plastic baby, and it really threw me off for a second, but they walked in with this plastic baby, and they're like, yeah, this is for a class, we got to keep this thing alive. <laughs> I'm like, okay. Um, and they were telling me about like, last night was so hard, because we had to wake up a bunch to feed this plastic baby, right? <laughs> 
And, uh, and I remember I turned to them and I told them, I think his name is Bert or something. That was the name of the baby. Is that right? Yeah, Bert. Okay, baby Bert. Um, they're telling me how hard it was to, to keep baby Bert alive. Like they just had to wake up all throughout the night. Baby Bert was crying. They had to feed and change the diaper and all that stuff. And I remember telling them, I was like, that is way more difficult than raising twins. <laughs> You're doing that for baby Bert is way more difficult than what I'm doing for my twins because you don't love Bert. You don't love Bert. And so the idea of waking up at night to change the diaper of a plastic baby that you don't love, right? I love my twins. I love them. I don't like waking up, but I'll do it because I love them. I don't like changing diapers. Man, they stink. But I will do it because I love them. I am enamored by my twins. I will endure great discomfort for them. When we are enamored by the good news of Jesus, we don't care about the discomforts anymore. We do these things because we are so loved and we love God. We love participating in that. Love provokes us to, say it with me, lean into the uncomfortable. It provokes us to do some pretty wild things. And so when we receive and hear that we are radically loved by God, it will naturally provoke us, uh, provoke some good vitals in us, provoke us to gladly repent, which is orient ourselves, and obey, which is to participate, even if that means great discomfort, right? We lean into the uncomfortable, even if that means that I come face to face with how messed up I am. We lean into the discomfort, even if that means I unreasonably love my enemies, even though I wish other things upon them, if we're being honest. Even if that means I give away more of my time, my energy, more than I'm comfortable with. Even if that means I give away control of my life as if I even had it in the first place. Even if that means that I love those that can never and will never love me back. Even if that means I surrender every corner of my life to God, who cares more about my life than I ever could. It's uncomfortable. But we find life in the uncomfortable. I love C.S. Lewis's quote. He says, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. But remember... There's life in the discomfort. There is. That's the whole picture of Revelation, the whole picture of the Bible is that God's trying to invite us to experience life to the fullest. He's inviting us to turn away from our own self-sabotage and ruin and participate in that recreation process. And so we, may we wake up because of our love uh, for comfort will kill the church and it will kill us. Therefore, let's lean into the uncomfortable. And there's a sense of urgency around this. Um, we see that phrase, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. I remember I was in eighth or ninth grade, and I was here for youth group one night, and then my dad, I think, was uh, at work, and then my mom was probably at TJ Maxx or something. And um, what happened while we were here, just half a mile away, someone pried open the window to our house, broke in, and robbed us. They stole... Bose speaker system. They stole jewelry. They didn't steal the cat, and there's some mixed reviews on that. 
But they stole a lot of stuff. And we came back. We saw the shelf was out of place. That's weird. And then we saw the window pried open. We're like, holy cow, we were robbed. And it happened right on. We're like, we just didn't know. Here I am half a mile from my house as someone's taking all of our stuff, right? Sardis even experienced this. It was unexpected. Sardis, you remember? They were built on a cliff. They were impenetrable. I can't say that word. No one could break in Sardis to uh, rob them or take them over, right? But what happened? Actually, if you look twice in their history, they were pillaged. They were overtaken. Do you know why? The watchmen were comfortable. And they fell asleep. So much so that people... Broke in and took over Sardis twice. And so this phrase uh, of Jesus coming back, that he will come like a thief in the night, resonates with them. They're like, man, we've been there before, which is ridiculous to think because look where we are situated, right? And so Jesus is trying to so graciously warn them, wake up, like don't push us off. We just don't have forever to do this. Wake up, participate in this now. Don't remain in your comfort. May we not wait to come alive. May we, after experiencing this absurd love of God, participate now with our repentance and obedience, even if it gets uncomfortable. And so, church, I'd like to ask you a couple questions. Have you heard and received Jesus? I'm not asking you if you've heard a great sermon or if you heard a song that really spoke to you. I'm asking us, have we encountered Jesus? If so, what might our vital signs be to account for the life in us? And do we want to lean into the uncomfortable? Revelation 3, 4 continues. Yet you still have, or you have still a few persons in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. Some people in Sardis did this well. To not soil your clothes means they just, they've uh, uh, not occurred guilt on themselves. They've not defiled themselves in, in any incredible way. They've not been corrupted or not been complacent, right? Which would have been easy to do if you are one of a few people in a church That doesn't do this, right? Therefore, it was understood that they will one day walk with Christ dressed in white, which was the kind of color of triumph, of celebration and joy, right? And then the the passage concludes in verse 5 and 6. It says, if you conquer, you will be clothed like them in white robes. And I will not blot your name out of the book of life. I will confess your name before my Father and before his angels. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Ultimately, this letter ends with promises, right? Promises for those who conquer, who decide to wake up and become alive, right? The first one that will be dressed in white. Now, we have a bunch of graduating seniors, and in just a few days, I'm not exactly sure when, they're going to be walking the stage dressed in their graduation regalia, right? Um, You guys didn't endure high school and go through high school just so you get that regalia, right? But instead, that is just a sign of your conquering high school. In the same way, we're not working like, I don't find any Christians like, yeah, I want that white robe. It's going to be awesome, right? No, no, no. no. We're just trying to conquer. And this is just a picture of celebration and victory. So that's one promise is that we will be dressed in white. And the next one is that our names won't be blotted out, which indicates that there's some names still in the book. He's saying your names aren't going to be blotted out. Basically, kind of like what happens is every city takes like a census, right? There's a book that documents every living human being in that city. And so what, what Jesus is saying is your name's not going to be blotted out if you're alive, right? Makes sense, right? We're accounting for the living citizens of heaven. 
And so if you die, if you decide to kind of do your own thing, if you decide to lean into the self-sabotage, like, it makes sense that, like, you're, you're not being a citizen of heaven. we got to blot you out. You've not experienced this transformation, right? And so he's saying the promise is, like, hey, for those who lean in and wake up, your name won't be blotted out of the book of life. You can have great assurance, right? And then the last thing is that Jesus is confessing our name. I was kind of confused when I read that at first. Like, what does that mean that he's confessing our name? The Greek kind of speaks to it a little bit, and I really appreciate it. It says, to speak the same thing, to agree, to celebrate in the presence of. So Jesus is speaking our name in celebration to God. Like, I know in graduation, my, my mom was a little crazy. She yelled. I know some of you can be like, oh, my gosh, that's my kid. And I love them. Look what they did. And they'll be cheering, right? I kind of see Jesus doing that in that moment. Oh, my gosh, look at them go. That's my kid. And I love them, right? That's what he's going to do in the presence of God. That's a promise. And that should encourage us and compel us, right? And then it finishes with the conclusion that we hear in a lot of these letters. If, if, if anyone has an ear, just... Hear, hear me out. Listen. Pay attention. Of course, everybody has ears, so hopefully we're all hearing this, right? And so the bottom line is that our love for comfort will kill the church. May we kill our love for comfort before it kills us. Let's lean into the uncomfortable. And I'm convinced that nothing great or significant, even in life, happens without a level of discomfort, Right? In life, there's not a lot of great things that happen if we're not enduring the discomfort, like riding your first roller coaster, or going on that first date, or the journey of marriage, raising kids, fighting and or beating cancer, confessing and admitting wrongdoing, hard yet honest conversations, breaking an addiction, and letting God remove the disease and sin from our lives to make us new again. None of that can take place without a level of discomfort, right? So let's lean into the uncomfortable. And I want to wrap up with kind of, um, there's two directions that I think we could take. There's two directions that I think any church can take when they read this letter to Sardis. First one being reinvention, or what we might call innovation. There's a pastor in Seattle, um, and a church out there, his name's Josh White. Uh, and he, he says, he talks about this idea of reinvention, what churches just try and do a lot of times. Uh, and he says, um, we reinvent or innovate as we re- try to redefine the gospel. So what does that look like? Oh, the church, we're just going to come up with the next, next best program or the next best sermon series or one event that is just going to take everybody's breath away. Or we're going to have a really awesome Bible study like this will work. We're going to reinvent ourselves. But we can still do all those things and still be a dead church, Right? We can still do all those things and still be a dead church. And so reinvention is probably not going to work out for us. He continues to say, Josh, that we need to see if being a Christian can actually do anything in our lives. We need to see new demonstrations of the power of the gospel in our lives. American Christians know how to go to church. We don't know how to be Christian. To be uncomfortable, right? So let's not settle for reinvention and innovation. Let's stop merely attending church and instead let's opt for something else. And the word is revival, which means to be made alive again, right? Does anyone want to be made alive again? Does anyone want to be made alive again? To not merely attend church, but to put ourselves in the way of Christ, to receive and hear uh, Christ so much so that it changes us. A.W. Tozer says that revival comes for those who want it badly enough. He 
also goes on to say that we all have as much of Jesus as we want. We can't revive ourselves, but guess what? God can, and God actually wants to, and he invites us into that. So are we willing to undergo the treatment of the great physician to bring us back to life, even if that means some discomfort along the way? So if I could challenge CLC with two things. First one would be, uh, let's pray for the courage to endure the discomfort. And I'm confident that when we pray for courage to endure something, God's just not going to give us a bucket full of courage. He's going to give us opportunities to practice courage. And so what if we prayed for courage? And then when the opportunity came up, we leaned into the uncomfortable for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, for the sake of our souls, for the sake of God, for the sake of our neighbor. What if we leaned into the uncomfortable? Maybe it's joining that group or having that hard conversation or confessing that addiction or leading or serving in that capacity that makes you uncomfortable. Maybe as we sing the last song, you come up to the front and pray or put your hands up. I don't know what it is for you. Only you know what it is. But I pray that we can pray for the courage to lean into the uncomfortable, knowing that great things lie on the other side. And then the second one is to actually get uncomfortable. Like Let's practice it. It, it, it gets easier with practice, right? May we kill our love for comfort before it kills us. Let's lean into the uncomfortable. Amen? Amen. 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 I'm going to invite the band up. And I love this last song. I actually was very rude to the band. <laughs> I um, yesterday said, hey, can we rearrange our set list? <laughs> can we rearrange the songs that we're doing? Because this last song that we're going to do, I really loves it, love it. And I think it kind of captures what we are seeking. And so the, the title of the song is Move. And this is what it says. It says, come, move, let justice roll on like a river. Let worship turn into revival. Lord, lead us back to you. And that's how we wake up. We encounter Jesus in a life-transforming way. And so let's once again hear and receive Christ as we sing this song and as we go from this place. So let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you're so gracious and kind to us. Uh, even writing this letter to the church in Sardis and to us. God, we just pray that we would not waste this grace, that we would be a good steward of it. And God, please challenge us to see where it is that we've grown comfortable Challenges where we've kind of fallen asleep and become complacent and lethargic, God. And I just pray you call us out of it. And may what call, calls us out of it be your goodness. May we just be re-enamored again. May we just see how broken we are and how much you love us even in that brokenness. God, we love you so much. Thank you for loving us. We pray this in your name. And everybody said, amen. amen. runs for cover When you move no one's turned away Cause where you are fear turns into praises And where you are no left unchanged sound good church so come move let justice roll on like a river let worship turn into revival
spines of family When you move The orphan finds a home Yeah Lord, here we are Teach us to love mercy With humble hearts We bow down at your Justice rolled on like a river Let worship turn into revival Lord, lead us back to you So come, move Let justice roll on like a river Let worship turn Justice roll on like a river Let worship turn into revival Lord, lead us back to So come, move Let justice roll on like a river Let worship turn into Lead us back to you. Is that not what the whole agenda is? Is that not what this passage invites us into? It's really easy to talk about being uncomfortable, but then it's a whole other thing to do, right? It's easy to walk out and be like, I'm not doing that, right? But what we wanted to do is offer kind of a a resource to help us do that well. I didn't even share this. Sorry, I didn't even share this with Bob. But um, we want (laughs) to... We want to give you a tool um, to not let the sermon just be a Sunday thing, but to wrestle with it throughout the week. Um, I very, like, professionally put a QR code in a piece of paper and, like, hung it up uh, out there at the, uh, near the end of the century and right outside. Um, we want to create space, just give you a tool to wrestle with these things with your family or your group. Um, and so what our hope is to do is to kind of synthesize some of this stuff, but then to give you questions to ponder as we go throughout our week. And then even, what, what's an action step look like in light of being uncomfortable? So for those of us who really want to get uncomfortable, we want to practice that. This is simply a resource for you. And I hope, and I hope, and I hope, this is the whole church that wants to lean into the uncomfortable to see God bring us back to life. Amen? Amen. So let's go in the peace and the grace and in the love of Jesus Christ through the easy and through the uncomfortable. Amen. You guys have a wonderful week. King of
Turn into revival. 